Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you, and we come before you only because the things that we have just sung are true, uh, that our life is now hid with Christ on high, uh, that in Christ we are free, uh, more than free, Lord, we are slaves who have uh, been now called sons, and Lord, we approach you boldly. We come before you uh, with heavy hearts. We come before you in various trials and tribulations, and and Lord, I can't even begin to ascertain all of the things that people have carried with them into their time together this evening. But Lord, we present all of these things to you. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit that you have given to us would be the comforter that you have promised he would be. Lord, we ask that we would be able to set aside the burdens of our life, uh, even just for a moment, so that we might hear from you in an unhindered way. Lord, we ask uh, that as we sit under your word, that we would um, sit in glad submission to it and the commands that it expresses and the the hold that it lays on our lives. And Lord, I pray for these people here uh, who you have called for such a time as this, Uh, these people who comprise uh, a ministry that is not mine but yours. Lord, I pray uh, that you would continue to build them up uh, in this faith that we profess. Lord, that you would continue to make them a holy people. Lord, that you would continue to grow them and strengthen them in their love and their confidence towards you and their love and their affections for one another so that that might be a testimony to the power of the gospel. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to be taking a break from our Unveiled Faces series, uh, which has been in 2 Corinthians, and we're going to spend our time together in the book of Acts chapter 16, if you'd like to turn there. Once again, that's Acts chapter 16, and we're specifically going to be in verses 19 through 34. And with all of the changes that are taking place in our ministry in the fall, I'm just going to confess to you that that I have a couple hopes going forward as we make this shift. Let me first and foremost say that if the Lord never grows this ministry by a single person, but he takes every person here and makes them deeply committed disciples of Jesus, then I will rejoice in that. But if the only reason that this ministry does not grow is because we are not willing to talk about the gospel, then we need to repent of that. And so my hope is that in moving, uh, that there is some sort of a momentum here to where you can say to the people in your life who might be interested in Christ, interested in the church, say, hey, we're, we're doing some cool stuff coming up if you would like to check it out. Uh, Because the reality is that part of being a disciple of Jesus is taking on the task of making other disciples of Jesus and having frank conversations, not mean conversations, not condescending conversations, not rude conversations, uh, but being willing to take steps so that the gospel might go forward in power. But the reality is I've seen evangelism done in many, many, many ways, and most of them have not worked out that well. Uh, There is a, there is Many ways in which we might evangelize, Uh, but there are certainly things that we should be aware of when we consider the overwhelming task of proclaiming the gospel to the world around us. And I think that Acts chapter 16 verses 9 through 34 is going to give us a helpful course as we consider what it looks like to be evangelistic people, people who are committed to the spread of the gospel and the salvation of the lost. So let me put us in context because the last thing I want to do is take scripture and rip it from its context and make it say whatever I want it to say because that is easily doable. See most Christian television networks for perfect illustrations of this. 
So in context, what has happened is that Luke is documenting the history of the early church as the apostles and the disciples go forward to fulfill the commission that Jesus has given us. Go and make disciples and teach people to obey everything that I've commanded you to do. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so Luke, not Luke, I'm sorry, Paul and Silas have entered into the city of Philippi. That may sound familiar to you, familiar to you because the Philippians received a letter from Paul. And when Luke, not Luke, when Paul and Silas enter into Philippi, they encounter two women that are documented in the earlier parts of this text. One of them is a woman named Lydia. That's an easy name for me to remember because my cousin is named Lydia. And Lydia is a seller of fine purple linen. Now, in the ancient world, purple was what rich people wore because it was difficult and expensive to make the dye that dyed things purple. And so if Lydia is a seller and a purveyor of purple linen, then we can infer that she's wealthy. She has a whole lot of money because it is not cheap to sell the things that she has. It's like the Gucci of the ancient world. It's fresh. So Lydia is a God-fearer, we're told, which essentially means that she is a non-Jewish person who worships the God of Israel. And Paul encounters her Uh, And he explains to her how Christ is the fulfillment of the promises in the Old Testament. And what we understand is that Lydia comes to a saving faith through Paul's evangelism. And in Philippi, what happens is that the gospel goes to the wealthy, to what we might call the cultural elites, to the high and mighty in the form of Lydia. But there's a second girl, a second woman that is mentioned in the text in Philippi. And she is a slave girl. And in verse 17, we are told, or verse 16, I'm sorry, we're told that as Paul and Silas were going to a place of prayer, they were met by a slave girl who has a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She follows Paul and us, which I'm presuming Luke is writing about an experience he had. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This she kept doing for many days. Having become greatly annoyed, Paul turns and speaks to the spirit. Now, you may ask this question. We have a demon-possessed slave girl, and she has somehow just become like the megaphone announcer for the gospel entering Philippi. It doesn't make a lot of sense uh, that a demon is interested in the Philippians hearing about the fact that salvation has come to their city. But maybe let me suggest to you that probably the motivation behind this is not that the demon really wants to see Philippians saved. Uh, Perhaps the motivation behind this is that the Philippians know all about the slave girl. They know all about the weird things that she can do. She's like Carrie in the Stephen King movie, and the whole town is freaked out by her. And by associating with Paul and Luke and Silas and following them everywhere, I would venture to say the people in Philippi are saying, if she's on board with whatever you're selling, I don't want it. And so it is this attempt at slander through association. At some point, Paul grows frustrated. We're told it happens for many days. He turns and he speaks to the spirit that is in the girl, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very hour. So the gospel goes in power to the wealthy. The gospel comes in power to this poor slave girl. And we come to our text for the day. We're told that her owners see that their hope of gain is gone. And so they seize Paul and Silas and they drag them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joins in attacking them. The magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave 
orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So pay attention and trace what is happening here. We have the gospel coming to this wealthy woman in the form of Lydia. We have this gospel coming in power to this slave girl who is possessed by a demon. And when Paul encounters her, he drives the demon out of her. But we're told, because she is a slave girl, that she has owners. And so she is not sort of this wandering ascetic, just kind of stumbling through Philippi, making these random predictions. She's not Nostradamus or anything like that. There are people who own this girl, and they are using her spiritual destruction for their financial gain. She's the Philippian Miss Cleo, if you will, saying, call me now for your free tarot card reading. Except it's in Philippi, and she may or may not be using tarot cards. I don't think those were invented until the Middle Ages, so probably not. But they're profiting off of this. And so when the gospel comes in power to Philippi, this system of the world is shattered. When the demon is driven out of this girl, this system of the kingdoms of man is broken, and it causes outrage, which ultimately lands Paul and Silas in prison. Now, this is not uncommon in the book of Acts. You'll notice that anytime the gospel comes to a different people group, it comes into direct conflict with the systems of the world. When Paul goes to the, uh, the Jewish people and proclaims the gospel, they're outraged and they try and kill him. Uh, we spoke several months ago about Paul's sermon on Mars Hill to the Stoics and the Epicureans. And when he encounters the Stoics and the Epicureans, they're not necessarily mad. They just think he's crazy. And so a few of them are interested in talking further, but a lot of them just completely discount it. And you know, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, what happens when he goes to Ephesus because he talks about it in 2 Corinthians. When Paul goes to the Ephesians and preaches the gospel to them, they turn from idolatry, at least a large portion of them, and they stop buying idols. And so all of the idol makers in Philippi lose their source of income because they are profiting off of the spiritual ruin of the people in Philippi. And they lead a riot and try and kill all of the people who are preaching the gospel in the city. It's led by a man named Demetrius, who's a silversmith. And we see this over and over and over again, that every single time the gospel comes into contact with the systems and the, the power structures of the world, it causes conflict. The reality is that this doesn't just happen in Acts. This happens in our world today. And I think it's something that you and I need to understand because fundamentally the gospel is offensive to the systems of the world. That's just how it is. The kingdom of God cannot encounter the kingdom of Adam's fallen race without setting it on fire. And I say this because we live in a day and age in which you are watching before your very eyes on Facebook and on social media and on um, TV. That's a thing, right? People watch it. Uh, on TV, you are watching the death of cultural Christianity. You are watching it collapse and implode before your very eyes. And the revolution is being televised, so to speak. But I think that many people look at that and they fear that the death of cultural Christianity is the equivalent of the death of gospel Christianity. And I want you to hear me when I say that they are not and have not and never will be the same thing. Cultural Christianity is not gospel Christianity. Gospel Christianity always finds itself butting up against the cultural inclinations of the kingdoms of the world. Cultural Christianity is interested in the gospel as a means to an end. Hey, here's five steps to a better marriage. Surprise, we found them in the Bible. Want to be a Christian now? 
here's seven steps to a better business. Oh, came out of Proverbs. Maybe you should come to church with me. It is interested in using the gospel as a way to achieve something rather than allowing these things to flow as a benefit from the gospel itself. This is not so with gospel Christianity. Cultural Christianity is concerned with taking your good life and making it a little bit better or giving you your best life now. Gospel Christianity is concerned with saying, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, repent and believe the gospel and you shall be saved. That is gospel Christianity. And that is offensive to the systems of the world. There is nothing particularly offensive or abrasive about here's five steps to having a better whatever. It's saying you are a sinner and incapable of saving yourself apart from an alien righteousness that has been purchased for you by Christ. Oh, that's not something everyone wants to hear. And you notice that when Paul comes to Philippi, he has no interest in perpetuating cultural Christianity. He doesn't turn to the slave girl's owners and say, oh, she's yours. Here's five steps to a better fortune-telling business. He immediately confronts the system of the world with the gospel of Jesus. And the way that I see it, uh, most of us recognize that there is something abrasive about Christian truth. There's something that just rubs up against the world around us. And we respond in these two different ways. There are those of us who see it and we say, well, this could get uncomfortable. I'm just going to step back. Maybe not say anything for the sake of avoiding confrontation. And I don't blame you. I don't like confrontation. It's not fun for me to argue with people or have difficult conversations. I don't like it, and I think that's normal. But for many of us, in an effort to avoid the offense of the gospel, we fall into this pluralistic, pseudo-universal pragmatism where we say, well, it's true for me, and whatever's true for you is true for you, and if it works for you, then that's fine. I'm not trying to trying to force anything on you and you know and we we sort of just fall back and go limp and and don't really stand on anything and ultimately in an effort to avoid offense we begin to pull bits and pieces out of the gospel and we effectively neuter it of its power because we've removed all of its truth claims so that's one error that we may fall into but there is an equally opposite error that's born in reaction to the first one We say, well, the gospel is offensive, it's confrontational, it's difficult for people to swallow. And I like that. That makes me feel brave and robust and strong. I like a good old-fashioned argument. I'm the guy who Googles such and such gets owned, and I just watch the YouTube videos of people getting crushed. And it's awesome. Your idea of a good time is pouring yourself a cup of coffee and just waging an internet war for 300 comments on Facebook. And ultimately, you carry this combative mentality into the way that you present the gospel. And you're combative, and you keep poking, and you keep prodding, and finally someone snaps and you go, whoa, I'm being persecuted for righteousness. No, you're not. You're a jerk, and you're getting what you deserve. So we fall on either side of this. But Paul has words for us, especially if we are particularly combative or argumentative. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26, he says, Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. 
and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Man, brothers and sisters, hear me on this. May you and I repent of the ways in which we have veiled the gospel because we are afraid to have hard conversations. May we also repent of the ways in which we have placed a stumbling block before the cross because we are overly combative and confrontational and do not listen to the call of Scripture that we should gently approach people. So Paul finds himself in prison because the gospel is offensive. And notice the progression that happens here. In verse 19, the slave owners see that their hope of gain is gone, that their Philippian Miss Cleo cannot help them anymore in making money. And so they seize Paul and Silas. They drag them into the marketplace before the rulers. They tell the magistrates, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city, advocating strange customs that we can't accept or practice. And we're told that the crowd joins in attacking them. The magistrates tear their clothes off, and they order that they be beaten with rods. And as far as I can tell from the text, this is an utter descent into mob justice. They're dragged before the leaders. The crowd breaks out in anger and starts attacking them. The leaders lose all composure and strip them naked and have them beaten and thrown in prison. Are you noticing something that's missing from these legal proceedings? A trial, the chance to defend yourself, or to answer the accusations that have been levied against you. All of these things are missing from Paul and Luke and Silas's experience in Philippi, which is why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he tells them, we were treated shamefully in Philippi. Because he is experiencing an act of tremendous injustice. And there is no question that this is an injustice. Paul knows it. He doesn't just go, oh, I guess this is how things go sometimes. He realizes, I haven't been given a trial. I haven't been able to answer the accusations. This is mob justice. You've beat me unconscious naked and dragged me into a prison. But notice where Paul ends up along with Silas in verse 25. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. This to me is completely astounding when you consider what has just happened to them. Uh, that they didn't, like, participate in some sort of, like, a high-speed chase with cops and get put in prison. Uh, but they are being dragged by a mob, beaten and bloody and bruised, and thrown into prison. And here they are at midnight singing hymns and praying to God in the midst of all of this. And it's astounding to me because I consider when things that are bad happen to me or things I find unjust, I consider the way that I react to them. So, something unjust happens, something bad happens. My response is normally, normally passive-aggressive, vague song lyrics posted to Instagram or Facebook. Uh, my response is eating my feelings at some wonderful fast food restaurant. Uh, my response is going to whoever is nearest to me that I trust at all and just railing to them about how unjust my life is and my experiences are. Or my response is just sort of having an implosion and screaming and punching the steering wheel of my car. Maybe I'm the only person who does this stuff, and I've just confessed my sins to all of you. But my reaction to mistreatment and injustice is not hymns and prayer. It's various coping mechanisms, none of which are particularly good for me or anybody else around me. But you don't see that with Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas aren't pushing their face through the metal bars and trying to plot to overthrow the jailer with their other prisoners. 
They don't have the tin cup that they're clanging against the, uh, against the bar singing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Uh, they're not screaming in anger and rage at the fact that something incredibly unjust has happened, but through their broken teeth, their shattered bodies, and probably through their tears of pain, they are singing hymns, and they are praying to God. And I want you to notice what happens next, that as they are doing these things, the prisoners were listening to them. I had a very dear friend of mine a number of years ago, and he was young. He was 25, 26, and he was diagnosed with brain cancer. It was sudden, came out of nowhere. He had a headache. I went to the doctor and said, that's because you have a tumor in your head, like the size of something that shouldn't be in your head. And so he and his wife began the process of chemotherapy and looking at brain surgery and all the things that come with it. I'm just going to tell you, he didn't work the sort of job that pays for chemotherapy and hospital bills. He didn't have the sort of insurance that covers three months off of work while he recovers from brain surgery. But he knew the Lord. And he walked through that period of pain and suffering with such grace as I have never seen before in my life. So much so that his friends who were not believers said to him, you know, I think the Jesus thing's kind of weird. Your music is not that good. I've listened to the Joy FM. But, but, low-key diss, I shouldn't have said that. Um, We won't put it on a podcast. Um, He said, he said, this is, this is, I, I don't get it, but, but I want you to know that I am astounded at the hope you have in the midst of losing everything by all external experiences or external perception. And understand this, because I realize that there are some of you in this room right now who are finding yourself in the equivalent of a Philippian prison, where you haven't done anything to deserve whatever you're experiencing, uh, where you haven't done anything to call down this punishment on you. It's unjust. It's unfair. You've lost your job. You didn't get into grad school. A relationship you had confidence in collapses. Friends weren't there for you when they were supposed to be. And on and on and on and on it could go. I just want you to hear me that the unbelieving world is never more fixed on you than when you walk through pain and suffering. And the way in which you react to it is going to determine their level of confidence and the hope that you claim that you have. We say that we as Christians are not those who have hope in this life only. And when push comes to shove and all of your hope in this life is taken away, we'll see how much we actually believe that. Uh, Many of you took our basic Christianity course. We took a break over the summer. We're looking at what it looks like to start that back up in the fall. Uh, so, so a lot of you are familiar with this, but for those who aren't, uh, there is a time, and there is in many churches still, a way that the faith is taught to new believers. It's called a catechism. And it's a series of questions and answers which are meant to outline the basics of the Christian faith. Uh, and so there are many catechisms. If you grew up Catholic or you grew up Lutheran or you grew up Anglican or Methodist or Presbyterian, you probably all learned different catechisms. But there's a question and then there's an answer and you're meant to memorize both. And people all the way down in their youth memorize this. And the purpose is so that if anybody should ask you, what does it mean to be saved? That answer you've memorized, which is rooted in scripture, can be on your lips and you can give an answer for what we believe. And there's a popular prominent catechism that came to rise in the Reformation. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. 
And of the hundred and something questions in the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question that is asked and memorized by every person who walks through it is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the first few sentences of the answer that would be memorized is this. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all of my sins fully with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the power of the devil. And I remember hearing an interview with a pastor out in Phoenix. It was a smaller church, and one of the elders was elderly, as the name, I guess, implies in the title. Uh, And he had fallen ill. And he was looking increasingly like he was not going to survive this sickness. And it came to the point to where it was a couple days to live. He's saying his goodbyes to his family. He's making his, his final requests. And this pastor walked into the hospital room as this man is uh, on all sorts of uh, machinery that is keeping him alive. He's conscious. He can speak, but barely. And the pastor sits down next to him. And we'll say his name's Greg because I don't remember his name. And he says to him, Greg... What is your only hope in life and death? And Greg responds, I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And from a hospital bed in Phoenix, Craig bears witness to the fact that Christian hope is not rooted in present circumstances. That his hope in life and in death is not that he gets out of the hospital bed. His hope in life and in death is not that he is fully healed and everything gets totally better, although that would be wonderful when we pray for the sick and for the healing of the sick, trusting that God is fully capable of it. But his hope in life and in death is that he is not his own. But body and soul and life and in death, he belongs to Jesus. And it's in moments like this that Christians bear witness to the fact that their hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness and not their personal circumstances. And Paul gives the same testimony as he and Silas sit in this prison in Acts. And they sing and they pray. We're told that suddenly there's a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison are shaken and immediately all the doors are opened and everyone's bonds are unfastened. The jailer woke, saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. So you may read this and think, what's with this jailer that he suddenly gets a death wish? Uh, and all of a sudden just kind of loses the will to live. Well, a couple things I would say contributed to this all of a sudden suicidal streak in our Philippian jailer friend. Uh, the first of which is that he got woken up by an earthquake. Like, I'm scared being awakened by my alarm. And he is woken up by an earthquake. Second of all, he's the jailer. He's the guard. He's sleeping on the job. Third of all, all the prison cells are open, and it looks like everyone got away. Now, in Roman justice... All of those things are a surefire way to get yourself killed. And so I would venture to say that the Philippian jailer wakes up, is terrified, realizes he's sleeping on the job, and realizes that everybody got away, and he says, the best thing I can do is just end it so that my family doesn't have to endure the shame of watching me go through trial and be humiliated publicly. So he takes his sword out with the intention of killing himself, and in this scene that echoes so much Abraham and Isaac on the mountain, 
As he is about to end his own life, Paul cries out to him with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. That, to me, is astounding. First and foremost, because Paul cries out, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. He doesn't say, Silas and I stuck around. He says, We are all here. Silas, myself, and all the people who were already here before we got here who listened to us sing and pray. It's astounding to me as well because I consider how hard I try to weasel out of uncomfortable situations if I can find a way out of it. So, point in case, when I was a freshman in college, I know many of you are USF students or USF grads, uh, you know this, uh, the drink machines at USF take debit cards now, or they started taking debit cards when I worked there. And I had only ever seen a drink machine that took actual money. But I didn't carry actual money. I just carried my debit card. And so I would swipe that debit card like it was not linked to a real bank account. I would be on campus for 10 hours a day because I would take all these classes and I would stack them. And in between every class, I'd be like, four or five bags of Fritos sounds great. Um, I've had a Coke already, but you know I could use another one. There's probably some good calories in there somewhere. And I would just swipe that card incessantly. And I didn't look at my bank account. I just kind of, I just pretended that there was unlimited money there. Until one morning, I was living at home. My mom wakes me up and she says, hey, Travis, have you checked your bank account recently? And I said, (laughs) no. And she says, do you know that you're negative $400 in your checking account? And I woke up and said, oh, here's what happened. I didn't charge $400 worth of soda and potato chips. I charged just enough to bring my bank account to zero, and I charged about 10 different $1.50 bags of potato chips, which all brought with them a $35 to $40 overdraft charge, which compounded all the way until I had this wonderful negative in my bank account. So I start talking with my friends about why I can't hang out anymore because I have negative money, not just no money. (laughs) And... um, And I finally go to my dad uh, after talking with them, and I said, Dad, I I have figured out how I'm going to pay back BB&T, and we're going to work this whole thing out. Go for it, son, he said in his deep, booming, Thurman commanding voice. I said, "Um," so I talked to my friend Paul, and he said that I can literally just close the account and nothing happens. And my dad said, really? And I said, yeah, apparently I just close it, and it's over. And my dad said, well, okay, If you'd like to close it, you can. Uh, You are welcome to do that, but you will not do it until you pay every single solitary penny back. And I said, Thurman, you don't understand. (laughs) I can just close it and there's no problem. And he said, I don't care if there's a problem or not. You signed your name to the paper and your word is your bond. You agreed that you would pay any overdraft charges you incurred. You incurred them. You will pay them. And then you can close your account. So in this moment, I realized and I learned that integrity matters most when it costs you something. Your integrity doesn't count for much when it's simple and it's easy and it's not costly. But when, in fact, it costs you something, that is when your integrity matters infinitely more. And I just think in in our day-to-day lives, when we consider just simple things that we think are stupid or outdated or don't apply to us, and so we just circumvent the rules. This is a 15-mile-an-hour road, but it sure looks like a 45-mile-an-hour road. I'm going to go 45. 
Uh, you know, it's 3 a.m. and all the lights are red and there's nobody here. There is not a cop in the world who would convict me for just kind of going. Or there is no crosswalk here. There should be a crosswalk here. I'm about to jaywalk and forge my path across this asphalt. And again and again and again, we say, this is dumb. It shouldn't affect me like it is. I'm going to just circumvent it. And I would venture to say that for Paul and Silas, they're sitting in this prison and they're saying, we didn't do anything wrong. We didn't get a fair trial. We don't deserve to be here. The shackles are gone. The doors are open. I'm leaving. But they don't do that. They stay. And to me, this is a testimony to their integrity. And it's not just Paul and Silas that stay. It's every single person that they have influenced through the testimony of their steadfastness in suffering. And so, as the jailer prepares to kill himself, Paul cries out, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights, and he rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, seven steps towards a more healthy business life. No, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. But I want you to see that the platform upon which they stand in this moment where they proclaim the gospel, that platform is built on their steadfastness and suffering, and it is built on their integrity in the face of difficulty. And that is why the Philippian jailer hears them. Because he's listened to them sing through their broken teeth and their broken bodies. And he knows that they're put here unjustly and they stay anyways. And he says, based on that, I will hear what you have to say about this Jesus. Brothers and sisters, hear me when I say that there is nothing in your Christian life that is unrelated to your Christian witness. Every single thing that you do in your life is building the platform upon which you must stand when the moment comes and you must proclaim the gospel. And if you build that platform with crappy wood, don't be surprised when you fall flat on your face. So, this is my appeal to, to those of you who are here and to anybody who wants to partner with us in ministry going forward, man, may we be a people who are steadfast in the face of suffering. We know that our only hope in life and in death is not in our circumstances, but in the one in whom we are found being united with Christ. And two, that we walk with integrity of heart and we build a platform upon which the gospel can be proclaimed just as it was in Philippi so that in Brandon and in Tampa and wherever this ministry goes, that we would stand on a steady and a firm pulpit and we would be able to say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the things that you call us to do in the Christian life are not things that we will do by our own natural inclination. Lord, we have sung in the last song that the strength to follow your commands could never come from us. It must come from outside of us. And so we ask now that the Holy Spirit would empower us for these things. Lord, that you would make us bold but gracious, that you would give us strength in the midst of suffering. Lord, that you would make us people of integrity. Lord, I, I look forward to seeing 
the work that you will do among us and in the world around us as you commission your people to go into all the land and proclaim the gospel. Father, as we come to the table of the Lord, I pray that you would meet with us. Lord, that you would bring us to conviction and repentance where we have fallen short. Lord, that you would encourage us and build us up where we have been brought low. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.